Would you join your hearts with mine? O God, we thank you that you are indeed the God of light and that Jesus is presented to us as the light of the world. We remember what Lewis says, that it is by your light that we see everything else. Help us this morning to see truth, to see Jesus, to see what you have for us, that we might grow. For you have indeed redeemed us out of darkness into the kingdom of marvelous light in Jesus Christ. Praise be to God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. Hear now the word of the Lord. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground. But a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Just recently I was reading an article in the Reformed Journal from a former professor at Hope College. Her name is Lynn Japinga. And she wrote an article entitled, Lessons from My Students, the Bible. She's been writing a series of things she's learned from her students over a 30-year career of teaching. And she talks in that article about how she would learn from her students through the feedback that they would give her at the end of the semester. Perhaps you remember doing that, having to fill out those evaluations. And often the students would share with her the things that they had learned in the class, things that they were never told in their church, things their pastors never preached about. She mentions how one young woman talked about how she'd never heard a sermon on Phoebe or Tabitha or the women of Romans 16. Another student mentioned how she never heard in her church her pastor grapple with the book of Judges and particularly the accounts of sexual violence and warfare and, and, and what that means and how, what it did for her as a student kind of reading those and grappling with the complexities of those texts that no one really dealt with those complexities. They kind of smoothed that over. And then Japinga writes in that article, she writes this, she says, teenagers are learning calculus and physics and taking advanced placement courses in literature, psychology, and history, but in church, they do not learn about the complexities of the Bible. And sadly, I think that charge is you know, generally accurate. It's an accurate description. Often there is in the life of the church, particularly in the pulpit ministry of the church, kind of this desire to you know, smooth over the rough edges of Scripture, to try to tie up every loose end, to solve every problem and complexity in the Scripture, to not even talk about that they even exist. And among those complexities that she talks about, the ones that we tend to avoid, she says this, she says, they don't know, that is the young people in the church, they don't know that there are two creation stories in Genesis 1 and 2. Did you know that? That there are two creation accounts in Scripture. 
oftentimes that's not talked about in the church, and obviously she dealt with that with her students, a lack of knowledge or familiarity with that. And this morning, in my last of this series of sermons, I want to deal with that issue. I want to remedy that perceived or real deficiency in the church. I want to talk about those two creation stories. And I want to do that for three basic reasons. I have three reasons for doing that. First of all, I think you can handle the complexities of Scripture. I respect my audience, my people, right? And I think you can deal with the complexities of Scripture. I want you to hear it from me. Uh, the second reason I want to do it is because this is so often used as a way of undermining people's faith. I remember in my own experience of taking a course at college and how the professor was almost you know, gleeful in kind of telling us, hey, do you know there's two creation accounts in Scripture? And they contradict one another. And it was, of course, being offered in the idea of not trying to resolve that or think about, really, I would say, the complexities of that or how one might view that in various ways, it was being done, really, to undermine one's faith and the reliability of Scripture. And I would prefer you hear it from me in the pulpit rather than there for the first time. So that's the second reason. And the third reason I want to talk about these two creation stories is because I sincerely believe I really and truly believe when properly understood, these two creation accounts are amazing. They're amazing, and rather than undermining faith, they're actually so incredibly faith-affirming. And I want you to be affirmed in your faith and to hear the full account of what God has for us. So this morning, we will look at the so-called problem of the two creation accounts in Scripture and let's start by grasping the nature of the problem. Let's think about what is the problem. And really, the problem is not so much that there are two creation accounts in Scripture. The problem that is raised, or those who would critique Scripture, is that the two accounts seem utterly incompatible. They seem contradictory. They seem irreconcilable, like they're two very different accounts of creation. And that's really where the problem is pinpointed. Now let me kind of outline this for you. I'm going to use some uh, charts here to help us. These charts come from uh, Peter Enns in his book, The Evolution of Adam. It's a very helpful little chart to grasp what the nature of the problem is. So I got some slides for you. I think I got them in the right order to this time, so hopefully it's all going to work. You can put up that first one. What is the problem? What is the issue here in the relationship of these two accounts? So we have an account in Genesis 1 of creation, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we just read this morning in Genesis 2, 4, that God in the beginning, these are the, this is the account of the creation of the heavens and the earth. So what is the incompatibility? What, where, where is the problem? Well, it comes up, first of all, in the duration of creation, right? When we read that one in Genesis chapter 1, creation occurs over six days. When we read the one in Genesis 2, it seems to happen in a day, right? On one day, it's kind of implied. Verse 4, in the day God created the heavens and the earth. Seems incompatible. Then we have the kind of 
uh, the status, the primordial scenario, kind of the situation, the setting in which the creation is occurs. And of course, in Genesis 1, we had the dark waters, right? That kind of chaotic sense. And then here in Genesis 2, it seems to be an entirely different setting. That, as ends puts it, of kind of an oasis amid a desert, a garden. So you can see the friction there, right? Go to the next slide. The other place that the conflict is seen is in the sequence of creation. Of course, in Genesis 1, we have the ordering of things. Remember that form and filling. We have the light and the ferment and the dry land, the plants. It's all this sequencing, of course, capping in the creation of humans, the creation of humans in God's image, male and female. He created them. In Genesis 2, though, we start with Adam. We start with just a man in a garden, right? And, and the whole story is, is focused on the garden, and then the animals kind of come later, and finally there's the creation of, of, of a woman out of, out of Adam's side. So the sequencing seems off, incompatible, irreconcilable, right? Go to the next slide. Then we have the method of creation. Genesis 1 emphasizes God speaking, God said, and it was, right? You have that sense of fiat creation. He names, He blesses, He separates things. And then in the second account in Genesis 2, we have God forming stuff out of clay, God breathing into the nostrils, right? That kind of stuff. It seems like a very different methodology. And then also the portrait of God is different. In Genesis 1, we have a portrait of this transcendent, sovereign God over all of creation. And then in Genesis 2, the whole account is this kind of very imminent God. You know, with hands-on, a lot of anthropomorphism, right? A lot of God breathing out of His nostrils, into the nostrils of Adam, that kind of stuff is going on. You have a different name of God being used there, Elohim in chapter 1 versus Yahweh Elohim in chapter 2. And then finally, if you look at the last slide, is the portrait of humanity. Genesis 1 seems to give us this picture of a general creation of humanity, males and female, right? Created in the image of God, given this creation mandate. But then we come to Genesis 2, and it's very particular, very specific. It's about one man, one male, right? Adam, and then the one woman coming out of Adam. And it seems to be a different focus, even in the sense of caretaking of the garden versus the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply. So when you pair parallel these two accounts, you can take that down, Kevin. When you parallel these two accounts, you see this, right? You can see this tension. And a lot of people have noted that. So what's up with that, Pastor? What's the deal? And what are we to make of that? What are the solutions to the so-called problem of the two creation accounts in Scripture? Well, let me give you three solutions that have been offered. And I'll give you the one I think, I think is right, or at least the one that I believe is accurate. So there's been three solutions. They all begin with the letter S. Very nice, right? I got this to work. Three solutions, three letters S. We'll go through these. And then we'll conclude with thinking a little bit about how truly amazing these two accounts are. All right, so three solutions. The first one is called the source solution. The source solution. And really, it's not so much a solution as it is an explanation. It doesn't try to reconcile the text. It doesn't try to remove the problem. In fact, 
it actually says that there are two separate contradictory accounts in the Scripture, and it purports to try to explain why that is. And really, this solution dominated biblical studies for a hundred years, from 1870 to 1970. This was what you would have been taught in any type of uh, seminary level, graduate level type of theological studies about why this is and where it came from. Let me give it to you in a nutshell, because you already have tryptophan in you, and if I do this long, you will fall asleep on me this morning. So, I'll try to keep this tight. Uh, not go overboard, give you a simple summary of this. It's called the documentary hypothesis. Already sounds exciting, right? The documentary hypothesis. It was developed by a 19th century uh, German theologian, although there were some, uh, uh, like a lot of things, there were a lot of people involved, but he's really the one. His name was Julius Wellhausen. And he helped to form a type of biblical studies uh, we know now as source criticism. And what he did was he looked at the Pentateuch particularly and how it was constructed, and he came across these doublets, how there are often these repeated stories, these kind of oddities in the text. You'll, you'll see those in Genesis, doublets, right? We have one right here, right as you open the Bible. Why are there these two accounts of creation? And so he put together a theory that there must be sources in the, in the Pentateuch that made up the Pentateuch, various sources, various factions, various authors with different agendas, and he went along trying to identify them in a variety of ways. And there's a little uh, kind of acronym. Uh, he gave them all letters, these different factions. It's J-D-E-P, standing for Yahwist, the Eloist, the... Um, Deuteronomist and the priestly faction. So there's these four factions, and what he said was the reason there are two creation accounts in the Scripture is because they represent two of these different factions who had two different agendas, and they were basically authored by two different people, and then over time as the Pentateuch was put together, a redactor, an editor came in, slapped them all together, and that explains why they don't make sense, because they were written by different authors with different agendas and different purposes. And so, yeah, they're contradictory because they come from different uh, viewpoints, and they're meant to be contradictory. And that kind of theory predominated for about 100 years until the mid-1970s when it kind of began to unravel a lot of people pronounce it dead. It's not dead, but it's still kind of around in various forms. But it is kind of this uh, viewpoint of Scripture that doesn't really take the idea of an inspired author very seriously. And I think even critics, uh, liberal critics, have generally at least altered this significantly, the viewpoint about whether this really holds up. And I share that with you only because it's still out there. A lot of people were trained this way, and if they're teaching, you might come across that documentary hypothesis. I don't think it holds water. I don't think it really answers the question, uh, and it's not certainly the way I would view Scripture. I don't commend it to you. I make you aware of it because it has been so dominant in biblical studies for basically 100 years. That's the source solution. The second solution is the sequel solution. The sequel solution. Now, what this is really is an effort to try to reconcile these passages to make sense of them together. 
And what this view does is that it really treats Genesis 2 as a sequel to Genesis 1, just like a movie, right? There's uh, part two, right? This is part two of creation. And the way this is articulated is that what you have in Genesis 2 is an account of subsequent events, things that occurred after the events described in Genesis 1. Now, there are a lot of adherents to this, some really good ones, like John Walton, who is a professor at Wheaton, an Old Testament professor, who I think is pretty amazing, uh, certainly a lot brighter than uh, this dim bulb up here. So, this is his view of, of what's going on. And so, under this understanding is, oh, Genesis 1 is the original creation of all things, the universe, right? It's the creation of humanity in general. And then comes Genesis 2 at a later time, and this is the creation of the Garden of Eden, the creation of these particular people, Adam and Eve, and what we are really getting here, according to this view, is Israel's backstory, right? Genesis 1 is the big view of the cosmos for everyone, but now in Genesis 2, in the sequel, it's Israel's origin story. It's about the generations of Israel, how Israel's story. Remember, the Pentateuch is an anthology. So it's kind of the Hebrew sequel to the cosmic original that's there in Genesis 1. And one of the strongest pieces of evidence for this is what occurs in Genesis 2-4, where we read, this is the account of the heavens and the earth, or these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And why that's so important is because that word account or generations, is the word in Hebrew, toledot, or toledah. And what it means is generations or descendants, and it is the structural marker of the book of Genesis. There are ten of these accounts of generations, and they're all related to the patriarchs of Israel. It's like a family tree. It's like doing genealogy, and you get these headings, and then you learn about the descendants. And what these people say is, here are the descendants of Adam and Eve. Here is the beginning of the Hebrew story, which unfolds through others like Abraham and Noah and etc., right? And this is the one about the Hebrews. This is the beginning of the Hebrew story. Now, one of the benefits of this and why this view is gaining certain levels of adherence is that it solves a problem that we face as Christians when it comes to the Genesis account and to modern scientific theory. And that is, it is implausible, according to modern scientific theory, the study of the genome, the study of DNA, right? What has been the current hypothesis among scientists is that it would we would need a lot more people than two to create the genetic diversity that we see today, right? Thousands of people, right? We would need a big sample size. It could not happen from just two people. The whole human race could not have descended from two people. And so what this theory, what this viewpoint, this solution is, hey, in Genesis 1, you had the creation of a whole bunch of people, humanity. And then in Genesis 2, what you have is either two of those humans were taken out and lifted up Adam and Eve, or they were created later. But it solves this problem, this modern origins debate problem, of how you get a larger pool of humans. It also solves the scriptural problem that when you come to Genesis 4, 
and you deal with Cain, right? What's the interesting problem? Cain kills his brother. He's kicked out of, right? He's, God banishes him. What is Cain afraid of? Other people. And so the question is, well, who's he afraid of, right? The scripture tells us about Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. And, you know, who's, who are these other people? And then Cain finds a wife, right? Where did he find this wife? And, you know, then there's all these kind of crazy gymnastics that we do to kind of explain these things. Well, this says, hey, there's already other humans out there. They were all created in Genesis 1. This is the story of Genesis 2. So it's a real solution. And there are things that commend this as an argument. And I think you can be orthodox and maintain that argument. You got to do some thinking about it. Because you got Adam, right? You got original sin. You've got all the two Adams and all that kind of stuff. But John Walton is certainly an orthodox and sound evangelical theologian. But this is not my view. It's not how I solve the problem. And I think it's a little too driven by the modern origins debate of trying to, you know, want to solve a problem and then trying to force the Scripture to answer the questions you want it to answer. You know, to, that, I think it's too driven by that as an exegetical uh, desire. All right, so we looked at the source. We looked at the sequel. Let me give you the third one. This is the one that's my view. It's called the synoptic view. The synoptic view. Now, you probably have heard that word before, synoptic, right? Where have you heard that word before? The Gospels, right? Synoptic really means being able to be seen together or seen alongside. We have four Gospels. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we refer to as the synoptic Gospels. The reason we refer to them as the synoptic Gospels is that they seem to tell a very similar story, right? They have similar events, whereas John, he's, he's way out there, right? He's doing his own thing. But we talk about those Gospels being the synoptic Gospels. We recognize that there is a relationship among those three Gospels, and here comes, you know, uh, source criticism. I don't disagree. Source criticism is very helpful. When we look at the Gospels, we realize that they likely relied on one another. Maybe there was another source involved that they were all using, and there's a lot of uh, theories about that and a lot of uh, ink to be spilled on that. But what happened in, uh, in studies of the Gospels, when it came to these synoptic Gospels, what, we, what you found is they were similar, but they still were different. Seemingly sometimes contradictory, right? And the sequencing of events, like why is this here and that there? And so what happened in Gospel studies was this. People tried to harmonize them. They tried to remove or resolve all of the different things. And you might have come across somewhere in your own life a harmony of the Gospels. It's a book. You open a book up and it's got the parallel columns and the accounts and, you know, and you, you try to work that out. And sometimes, I remember even in seminary, when I was in seminary, there were still some efforts, uh, people who argued that way, of trying to, the goal was to harmonize the Gospels, to make it all smooth, to work it all out. Now, thankfully, that has largely subsided in gospel studies. There's much more comfort in letting each of the gospels speak for themselves. And when I preach on the gospels, I try to do that. 
I don't go and say, well, here's what Luke said or this is what Mark said about Matthew. I don't do that because Matthew should speak for Matthew. God gave us three Gospels for a reason. And what is that reason? It's by having these three different perspectives on Jesus that we gain a fuller understanding of who Jesus is. Much better than if we had one gospel. God gave us three because we learn more from three. Actually, four. He gave us four. But there are three synoptics, right? And it's not by harmonizing them that we get a fuller picture of Jesus. It's by reading each individual gospel writer and letting them show Christ to us. Now, what does this have to do with Genesis 1 and 2? I think you should read them the same way as you read the four gospels. You should read them synoptically, read them alongside one another, because in reading both of them, we get a fuller and more complete understanding of who God is and who we are and what the world is about. And particularly, I think that Genesis 2, what it represents is a deep dive, if you will, on day six, on the nature of humanity, right? Humanity is created on day six of creation, and Genesis 2 digs deep into the nature of human beings, who we are. You might think of it as either a kind of a, a microscoping on day six or a telescoping of day six. It's that type of, it's an exegesis of day six for us about the focus of who we are as humans. Tremper Longman, an Old Testament professor, puts it this way. He says, Genesis 2, 4, B through 25 is a second creation account that is, it is a synoptic, not sequential account. It intends to develop the story only briefly mentioned and described as day six in chapter one. The story is told in a way that informs its readers about the nature of humanity and so much more. Yeah, I think that's it. It gives us a fuller and more complete picture of God and who we are, of creation, just like the four Gospels give us a more complete picture of Jesus, and we should read it that way. And if you read it that way, if you just read them on their own, not trying to answer modern you know, debates about origins, just read them for what God is saying to you through them. What you find is an amazing, extraordinary blessing. Just think, beloved, for a moment, if we didn't have this problem, if we didn't have Genesis 2, if all we had in our Bible was Genesis chapter 1. I mean, just, just pause for a moment and think about what the world would be like, what the history of the world would be like, what our lives would be like. Can you imagine no Adam and Eve, no Garden of Eden, no trees of the life of the knowledge of good and evil, no bone of my bones, no idea of the purpose and dignity of human work, of the community that existed between God and His creation, humans, and also between Adam and Eve, no gender uniqueness that is present in, the, in chapter 2, no insight into marriage. And human sexuality as it's unraveled there in Genesis 2. I preached 11 sermons on these two chapters. There is so much there. Could you imagine not having it? Could you imagine what history would be like without it? 
When we study creation, I've talked a lot about comparing accounts of ancient Near Eastern cosmologies with the Hebrew cosmology. And when you do that, and this is universally agreed, there are two distinct things about the Hebrew cosmology in relation to all the other ones. One of them is this radical monotheism. There is one God overall. The other thing is its radical view of human dignity of who we are before God, the value of humans. We are not cogs in a wheel. We are not there to be day laborers for the gods. We are there as people who are made in the image of God, those with whom God has communion with and has a community with. That is what stands out. Now imagine a Bible without Genesis 2. Imagine history without Genesis 2, without that portrait of human dignity. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. Where did that idea come from? Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Tom Holland, the great British historian, writes this. He says that we are all of us possessed of certain fundamental rights simply by virtue of being human and of a dignity that embraces our entire species, our doctrine so widely accepted in contemporary Britain and, of course, in America, that many of us barely recognize them as doctrines at all. What's he saying? He's saying we have in our mind, in, in our, we presuppose as Western people that human beings have dignity. Where does that come from? It comes from here, from Genesis 1 and 2. In his book, Dominion, Tom Holland says, the most influential Christianity is the most influential framework for making sense of human existence that has ever existed. He's right. And it comes from here in Genesis 1 and 2. In fact, it's so influential. It's so in the bloodstream of who we are as humans. Even people who are non-believers, even people who are atheists, even people who would argue against Christianity and attack it are doing so on the soapbox, if you will, of Genesis 1 and 2. Again, Tom Highland writes, like dust particles so fine as to be invisible to the naked eye, Christian morals and presumptions were breathed in equality by everyone, believers, atheists, and those who never pause to so much as think about religion. We breathe it in. Where do the dust particles come from? Where does this idea come from that humans have an essential, fundamental, basic dignity before God that should be respected by all people. It comes from here in Genesis 1 and 2. And I can't imagine a world without both of those accounts. I'm really glad that God gave us the problem of two creation accounts. For in these chapters... In these chapters is set before us the greatest moral argument for human dignity, human rights, that humans have dignity before God and that we have a responsibility to one another. And when you add to that 
the story of the Gospels, the story of the Incarnate One, the Divine Son who takes to Himself human flesh, what you have is not only, as Holland puts it, the most influential framework for making sense of human existence, but what you also have is the most powerful moral argument for human dignity. And also the most powerful argument for human redemption and salvation and the hope for a new creation. That's why I'm glad we have two accounts of creation. Because when we read them together, we learn about God and we learn about ourselves. And we learn about the importance of human dignity and fundamental human rights. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you for providing us these accounts of creation that allow us to see and understand ourselves and you and our relation to you. We thank you, O God, for having these things that have impacted the history of the world, particularly the Western world. And we pray, O God, that we would live out of these truths in our lives that we as Christians would be those who promote basic human dignity, human rights here and around the world. For you taught us in your word how important your creation is to you and that we owe you the obligation to take care of it, steward it, and to be our brother's keeper. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.